Good morning, everybody. Happy rainy Super Bowl Sunday. All right, so I've kind of got to ask it. How many of you guys are pulling for the Patriots? Oh, this is great. Okay, who's pulling for the Rams out there? So much. I, now, I, really, we kind of got to investigate and see how many people are actually pulling for the Rams, or is this more just like a anybody but the Patriots kind of thing at this point? I'm with you. I'm sorry, Patriots fans, but it's got to end at some point, right? Oh, man. But hey, just, just keep in mind, all of us, we are talking about love this morning. So when your team is down tonight, don't forget that, all right? Oh, man. If, uh, if you are new to our church or if you're just visiting, my name is Justin, and I am the student pastor here, and we are smack dab in the middle of a three-week series called What Love Is, where we are looking at what love is, and we're digging into 1 Corinthians 13 to kind of get a better picture of that. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning or you've got it on your phone, something like that, you can go ahead and pull uh, up 1 Corinthians 13 because that's where we'll be for most of the morning. And the reason that we're in this series right now, surprisingly, is not anything to do with Valentine's Day coming up soon, but the reason that we're in this series on love is because that Jesus says in Matthew 22 and in some other places that the greatest thing that you can do or the greatest things you can do are two things. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. And it seems really simple, but Jesus says that if you do those two things, you've pretty much got it down what it means to be his follower. You've got it covered if you do those two things. And so love is incredibly important to what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so that's why we're kind of digging in a little more to this. You know, in fact, Jesus says that love should be the defining characteristic that we're known by as his followers. He says this in John 13, 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I don't think you can overstate how important love is. But here's the thing. Christians have been known for a lot of things. And a lot of the times, it has not been love. You know, in fact, I think in some ways, we've been known for just about everything that we say and do except love in some cases. And we need to change that. Oh, hey, I got a symbol now. That's great. Can I take that? I'm going to take that from you. You know, in fact, that was, that was great timing, Todd. Thank you for that. You know, one of the things that Paul says is that when we, when we live the Christian life and we say things and we speak Uh, you know, our truth, and we even give the message of Jesus. If we don't have love, he says, you sound like this. I don't know about you guys, but I'm annoyed already. Like, I kind of thought at some point I should just stand here and do this and see how long it takes before somebody just comes and just takes it away from me. I don't think it would take very long, right? Because the reality is that love is central. It's at the core of who we're called to be and what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. But a lot of the times, we sound like that to the world. And we need to change that. Right? It breaks my heart as a student pastor and as someone who kind of grew up with a group of friends in the church that I see so many people of my generation and younger that walk away from the church or stay away from the church because they think there's more love and there's more joy out there than there is with God and there is with his people. Right, and so we need to change that, and I hope that that's what we'll see a little bit of, of how we can do that, that more, uh, this morning, of how we can change our lives to show God's love through us. 
Right? We want to know, what does that look like? How do we do it? And so that's what we're going to dig into 1 Corinthians 13 for. Todd started us off last week, if you were here, by uh, looking through verses 1 through 4. And so we're going to pick up in verse 5 this morning and work our way through verse 7. And I think this passage is really going to give us a lot to wrestle with. In some ways, this, uh, this may kind of make you a little uncomfortable this morning when we talk about some things and really dig into this, but it's something that I think that we really need to understand and focus on to be able to love the way that God calls us to love. Because as simple as it is to say, love God and love people, it's not easy. It's not easy to love God and love people, especially the way that we're called to do it. And in order to kind of see how 1 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7 is going to show us that kind of love that we're supposed to have this morning, we're actually going to take a step back from the passage for a little bit and kind of talk about some things before we dive in. And uh, so basically, you see, anytime we approach a text in Scripture, there's really some things that we've got to deal with and sort out to make sure that we're understanding it the way that God wants us to understand it that we pick up on what God is saying to us and how he wants us to change. And really, there's some good ways and some not-so-good ways that we can approach Scripture. right? And one of the things that uh, is pretty prevalent in church culture, I'm not necessarily saying here, but just in general, I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes if this has been you, but one of the things that you'll hear a lot of times, especially in small groups and Bible studies and things like that, is, You'll, you'll open up a verse and you'll hear, well, I think this means this to me. Or what this means to me is this. And in some ways, that actually kind of sounds like a very personal and spiritual approach to seeing what Scripture has to say to us. But the danger there is, is that when you approach Scripture like that, right, you can make it say anything you want it to say. And people do all the time. Right? That's, there's an explanation there for probably half the denominations that we have in the country because we've approached Scripture lightly like that, right? But because we take the Bible seriously, we want to know what was God and the author that he used in a particular book, what was he saying to the original audience in their context, and how would they have understood it? And then how does that apply to us? You see, in, in uh, our case this morning, we want to know what was Paul trying to say to Jews and Greeks on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, and how would they have understood it? And then how does that apply to us? Because the reality is it might be very different than how we as 21st century modern Americans with everything that's gone into us and shaped us look at a passage and initially understand it. Right? And so this idea, this, this difference between uh, how scripture was meant to be understood in the original context and then how we understand it in our context is something that basically theological nerds, I could say scholars, but it's theology nerds. It's what they call the hermeneutical gap, right? And that word is completely unimportant other than uh, if you want now, if you end up in a Bible discussion with someone later on, you can see, well, you see, the hermeneutical gap means that you're interpreting uh, this incorrectly, but Actually, don't do that. That kind of goes back to the whole symbol thing, right? So don't, uh, don't pull that out. But the reason why I kind of want to bring this to your attention this morning is because I think when we come to this passage, there's uh, an extra amount of potential that we're going to be affected by the lens and the context that we bring with us to see what it's saying to us. And that when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, and we start there, 
that we're likely to just kind of pick up on this idea that, okay, like, love, yeah, I need just a little more encouragement. I just need a little more focus there, and I'll be good, because I pretty much got that down. But the reality is that the gap between what God is calling us to and how we understand the text might be a little bit bigger than that. And we want to make sure that if that's the case, we're picking up on that. And so thankfully, Todd started this process off for us last week with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 4, and he talked through some of the things on uh, kind of the original context side of things. One of, a couple of the things that Paul talked about last week is that uh, Paul wrote this letter in Greek, right? And the original audience would have read this with an understanding that Greek had about four or so uh, words for love that they used. And so when they read through this passage and they read the word agape, they would have understood that what, what's being talked about is a godly kind of love. Uh, kind of the best way that I can put it in, in our terms is almost an unconditional love. And they would have instantly seen that and recognized it, understood what they were being called to. Right? But when we approach the text, we just have our one word for love in English, right? And we can't really even differentiate between the warm, fuzzy feelings we have between us and God or us and family or even chocolate ice cream. Right? We don't have that kind of nuancing in our language that we might miss what we're being called to. And kind of an, another piece of context that Todd talked about last week that is kind of an innocent example of uh, how we have this tendency to take Scripture and, and kind of say what it means to me or to take it out of context is that the vast majority of the time that you've probably seen 1 Corinthians 13 is in a wedding context. Right? And I'm, I'm not... Not bashing on you if that was you, I actually am pretty positive that 1 Corinthians 13 was in my wedding program, uh, and so I can't, I can't look down on you for that, um, but here's the deal, and I don't think it's particularly dangerous or anything like that, because marriage is one of our relationships that we're called to love, but the reality is that the standard that Paul puts forward in 1 Corinthians 13 is the standard for all of our relationships, not just marriage. And so while it's beautiful in wedding context and things like that, when we, you know, when we take our wedding pictures and we frame it with the calligraphy, 1 Corinthians 13 around it, it's great, it's beautiful, but the reality is that we might be limiting how we understand how this verse applies to us because the reality is that the standard of love Paul puts forward goes across the board. It's for all of our relationships. And so if that's not challenging enough for you this morning, what I want to look at is uh, kind of back on our, our previous slide is, is our side of the context. I want to dig in a little bit more to the lens that we bring with us when we come to this passage that might be preventing us from seeing exactly how radical of a love God calls us to. And in order to do that, that means that for probably 95% of us in the room, I would guess, we've got to take a look at what we would call Western philosophy and ethics, right? If you've been born in America or were educated here, or if you've spent any amount of time here at all, you've been influenced by, and could probably, uh, it would probably even be true to say, you're a product of Western thought and ethics, right? So we've got to dig into that to try and, and figure out how we've been influenced and peel it back a little bit so that we can see our text kind of with new eyes. And you see, just like... Uh, just like we are products of Western philosophy, Western philosophy itself is a product of centuries of thoughts and ideas that have risen up and fallen and overturned one another and replaced each other. And it's kind of constantly evolving. 
right? One of the things, though, that every philosophy and that it's always trying to do is to answer kind of this one question. Who is sovereign? To put it in other terms, the, the question that these philosophies and ethics and worldviews that we have are trying to answer is, where does power, authority, and truth come from? How do we determine that? Where does that come from? And you see, as Christians, we know, or at least we should know, right, that God is ultimately the source of power, authority, and truth. But the reality is that for most of human history, we kind of operated a little differently for practical purposes. And uh, there's kind of some discussion that we don't have time to go into of whether it's been God or whether it's been uh, more this nation level or monarch or whether it's been us. But for most of human history, for practical persons or for practical purposes, Western thought has viewed the self or our individual persons as governed by one of these higher authorities, right? By God or by a monarch operating in his place or on his own, however you want to think about it. But then the Enlightenment happened, right? We kind of carried along like that for a while, and then the Enlightenment happened. And if you're kind of a little rusty on your history, or even maybe, maybe you didn't do quite as well in uh, social studies and things like that, I know some of our students' grades, right? If you're forgetting a little bit about the Enlightenment, here's kind of what happened. Basically, what happened in the Enlightenment is that the ideas and kind of the investigative approach of the scientific revolution that took place kind of in the 1500s with guys like Galileo and Isaac Newton, kind of some of those famous names that you know, their, their new kind of scientific method and this investigative approach to life started to creep into other areas. It started to influence how Europe and, and the Western world was thinking about things like politics and economics and, and even eventually... It started to creep into how we thought about this fundamental question of who is sovereign? Where does power, authority, and truth come from? And essentially what you saw is you saw people that had for, you know, for centuries lived in this kind of dynamic where the self is under the authority of either God or a monarch and we're, you know, we kind of are subjected to that and to their definition of truth and their authority you saw people and philosophers start to question that, especially at kind of at the monarch level. You saw people start to say, what gives the king the right to tell me what to do? You know, I, I think it was kind of like, they call us peasants and take our money. Why are we listening to them? Right? And you saw kind of in the 1600s and 1700s that this kind of movement started to happen that started to reject the authority coming from above. Right? And you saw guys like Locke and Montesquieu, Rousseau, Voltaire, kind of some names that hopefully ring a bell for all of us. Right? You saw them put out some really influential writing and some ideas, especially in the political realm, that had a lot of influence. Right? Things like uh, the idea that uh, people are entitled to natural rights, right? life, liberty, property, right? or uh, what we call the separation of powers. Uh, Montesquieu put that out there that... You know, if, if we have these government or monarchs above us, we need to limit the power and authority that they have that they're able to exercise over us by separating it. Right? And you also saw uh, something called the social contract that Rousseau put forward, which was basically this idea that, you know, what gives the right to the government or the monarch to dictate power and truth and authority to us? Well, it's the people. We give them the power, and they only validly exercise it 
as long as they continue to serve our interests. And hopefully those ideas kind of ring a little bit of a bell for you back from history class and things like that, because those are the ideas that were prevalent and that were sweeping across the world at the time of the American Revolution. Those are the ideas that kind of influenced and spurred on guys like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And if you look back at things like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, you're going to see those ideas all throughout it. And you're going to get a sense of that, that kind of spirit of the age where they were questioning and rejecting authority. You're going to see that. Right? I think as Americans, we can all kind of say that, yeah, that whole, uh, that whole sense of individualism and rejecting authority and kind of making it our way is pretty ingrained in our society, in our culture, how we were even born as a nation. Right? But I want us to see this morning that I think there's some unintended consequences that maybe those guys didn't quite understand or didn't quite foresee when they were putting forward these ideas in Western thought, because underlying all the political ideas and really at the core of what happened in the Enlightenment is this. If I could see the, the three uh, stages real quick. What happened in the Enlightenment is that this, this idea of who is sovereign, who has power and authority and truth, or who dictates those things, who creates them. What happened in the Enlightenment is that we decided that the self does those things. That we as individuals have the right to determine truth for our lives and that we as individuals, as a collective people, right, are how power and authority are created. And ultimately what happened, even though it was kind of more a movement, a rejection of monarchs and the governments at the time, is that really what happened is that the self rejected any higher authority imposing its will on them, which included God. Right? And that has kind of continued on in our thought for hundreds of years. You may, uh, basically you can kind of sum it up in a statement from uh, one of the guys who was the founders or the fathers of the Enlightenment. He kind of preceded the guys I talked about uh, earlier by a little bit. And it was a guy by the name of Rene Descartes. And Descartes had kind of a famous one-line statement that I bet if I start, all of you guys can finish. Descartes said this. He said, I think, therefore, right? All of us still kind of remember that. And that, that may not seem like that big of a deal. But ultimately, what those ideas were doing was placing the self at the center of existence. I think, therefore I am. My existence is about me. I did this. Right? And I don't think they saw the consequences hundreds of years out back when they were putting these ideas forward and kind of changing the world but it has affected us in some in incredibly huge ways. Right, if you think about it in our culture, you can kind of see this pretty quickly. What's just about one of the worst things that you can do with somebody else? Tell them they're wrong. Right, in our culture, if you tell somebody they're wrong, it's just about the worst sin. Right, who are you to tell me what truth is? Right? So we see how this kind of thinking is, is hugely uh, just ingrained in how we think as a culture. And what I want us to see this morning is that this kind of philosophy, this kind of thinking that we are all baptized in is hugely contradictory to what the Bible teaches. Right? And that may not be that much of a surprise to you. 
but I think it might be surprising at how stark the contrast is. Because the reality is, is that we are not the first people to have a culture like this. In fact, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, went through a period, or really many periods like this. And the book of Judges has a story at the end of it that honestly, because there are probably some kids in here, I'm not going to go into the details. It's that bad. But it's, a, it's just about one of the most horrific accounts of wickedness that you can possibly imagine. And it pretty much involves the entire nation of Israel, God's people. And the book of Judges, it spends the last few chapters talking about this story, and then it ends with one single verse. It ends with one single verse that offers kind of an explanation about what happened in Israel at the time. And it offers something that I think should be a little ominous for us. Judges 21-25 says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sound familiar to anybody? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The 2016 Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year, they kind of, they look at internet searches and things like that, and every year they put out a word of the year, kind of something that's been used, you know, uh, exponentially more this year than it had ever been before, something that was created this year. And in 2016, the word that they chose was post-truth. And the definition of post-truth was this. It was relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. You see, what's happened is Western thought and Western philosophy that we're all raised in or grown, or at least most of us, right, has spent centuries putting the self at the center of existence, making the self sovereign, making the self the source of power, authority, and truth. And we've got to understand that background a little bit when we look at things that are going on in our culture and when we talk about some of the discussions that are taking place you know, around some of the hot-button topics like abortion and sexual identity and orientation and immigration and social media and just all the things that our culture is struggling with. We have to understand some of that background when we go into those discussions and when we think about our viewpoints as Christians on it. Right? And just to give you an example with one of those things about how this thinking kind of invades the discussion and how it plays out and how we approach it and how our culture approaches it, uh, is I just want to look at abortion for a second. Right? And first off, let me just say this, that there is abundant grace and love from Jesus Christ no matter what you do. And that you need to hear that before we start talking about this. But I want you guys to think about it, that most of the argument from the Christian side when we approach something like abortion has been, you know, the, the idea that unborn babies are, are human beings, they're children, and they're worthy of protection. Right? And that was a good argument. 30 or 40 years ago, back in the 70s, when Roe v. Wade was passed and technology wasn't as great and it was easier to kind of say, okay, this, you know, we don't really know what's going on in the womb. We don't think, you know, they don't really turn into a baby until a lot later in the process, right? But science has kind of shown us at this point that babies look like babies a lot faster than we thought they did, right? And they have heartbeats and fingerprints and their own unique DNA, right? They're children. Everybody knows that. And that's not what the argument's about. 
anymore. Right, so John Piper, he's a, if you're not familiar with him, he's a, he was a pastor kind of up in Minnesota, and he still is kind of working and writing. He doesn't really pastor a church specifically anymore. But about five years ago, he went out to lunch with an abortion lobbyist, and his goal kind of going into the lunch was that he was going to argue with this guy and make the case that these are children, right? And because they're children and they're human beings, they're living, abortion is murder, and we should stop this. Right, and so they sat down for lunch, and John Piper started making his case, and about... 30 seconds into it, Piper said the abortion lobbyist stopped him and said this. He said, I know that. I know we're killing children. It's simply a matter of justice and freedom. It would be a greater evil to deny women the equal right of reproductive freedom. You see, when the self is sovereign when the self is the source of power, authority, and truth, that there is no outside circumstance, there's nothing in life, there's no person, even if it's your own child, that can dictate to you your reality or that can make your life anything other than exactly what you want it to be. Right? And this has infected all of us. And I want us to pause here because it's going to be tempting for all of us to think, okay, like, yeah, I can see that but that's not really me. I've got, you know, the good Christian opinion on those hot button topics and I'm not that selfish. I haven't been affected in those areas. And maybe you have, you know, the correct viewpoint on some of those areas, but we cannot assume that we have not been infected by the sovereign self thinking, this culture that we all swim in and that we're raised in because it's infected all of us in some way or another and to some extent or another, right? It infects how we think about our friendships, our business practices, our finances. It infects how we think about our life goals and our ambitions. It comes into play in every area of our lives, including discipleship. And that's the reason that we're looking at this morning, because our culture and we are all about, whether we want to admit it or not, making our own way seeking our own way, getting our comfort, our happiness, our security. Right? You have the right to determine what's right for you. You do you. Have it your way. No offense, Burger King. Right? It's stuff that we hear over and over and over again in our culture. Even if we're not really paying attention to it and we don't think we're picking up on it, it's there. And we've been raised in it. We've swam in it. And it's infected us. And I think that we have to understand that, and we have to have looked at that a little bit when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7, and that when we truly understand the nature of our selfishness and how prone we are to it, that maybe we'll read the text just a little bit differently. So I want you to just close your eyes with me for a second. I want you to hear the words of 1 Corinthians 13, 5 through 7. Paul says this, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love. And there is an enormous gap between where we are and the kind of love and the level and radicalness of love that God calls us to. 
And if you really understand that, then when you read that first verse, you can't walk away from it thinking, oh, okay, that's pretty easy for me. I can Just a little extra encouragement and I won't be that selfish. Right? When you really understand the nature of our selfishness, when you read that first line that love does not insist on its own way, it feels like death. And it's because it is. Love is the center of the call of Christ in our lives to die to ourselves. To die to ourselves and to live, really live, for Him and for others. Right? Christian love and the Christian life is not about this emotional feeling or pursuing happiness from other people like we tend to think about it. It's not about you at all. Right? True love is not about you. It's not about me. Or to change it a little bit so it rhymes and hopefully you'll remember it better. Right? Love is true when it's not about you. Love is true when it's not about you. Christian love, the godly love that we're called to is about constantly resisting our selfishness and making it not about me despite all of our raising and our natural tendencies and what our culture points us to. It's orienting my favor, it's orienting my efforts, my life goals and everything about me towards others. Right, living for them, not for myself and striving for their good regardless of what they do and whether they're worthy of it. You see, when it's about us, when love is this you know, warm, fuzzy feeling that we try to strive for and seek from, from others and to get happiness from others in the form of love, we do get irritable or resentful. Especially when, the, when they're not making it very easy to love them, when they're not giving us our way. Right? I think everybody can probably think of some examples of when They've been irritable or resentful because somebody they love isn't making it easy for them to love. And they're not letting them, or they're not letting us get our way. And Paul says, no, no, no. Right? If you really understand what love is, this isn't about you. And when you run into those moments where you don't get your way and where people make it uh, difficult to love them, you don't have to get irritable or resentful because you knew it wasn't about you in the first place. Right? We have to know that it's not about us. This is kind of a, an interesting little tidbit, but do you know what the, the word of the year for 2018 was? The Oxford Dictionary word of the year for 2018 was toxic. And you may have heard that word re recently. There was kind of a Gillette commercial that came out about toxic masculinity that you either may have no clue about or you may have gotten online and debated somebody on Facebook. And... Uh, what I want you to hear real quick is don't hear me or assume uh, that I'm dismissing that argument or anything like that because I think there are absolutely aspects of that discussion that we have to wrestle with as Christians and especially as Christian men. But here's the thing that I think should be scary for everybody in our room because we're all part of our culture. You see, when the self is sovereign, when we make our own truth and when we get everything our way, Everything else that doesn't line up with our truth and everybody else that doesn't line up with our truth is toxic. Right? They become toxic to us. And that should scare all of us. And we see it so much in our culture and in the political environment. 
But here's the reality, right? If there's ever been a case where somebody had the right to label others as toxic, it's God with us, right? Scripture says that all of us are sinners. We have all been haters and rejecters of God, that that's how we're naturally born. But here's the great truth of the Bible, right? We know that the great commandment is for us to love God and to love people, but the great truth of the Bible is this. God loves us. God loves us. And thank goodness that God's love for us isn't dependent on us because we never would have been worthy of it. We're not worthy of it. We don't deserve it. But God's love, true love, isn't about us. It's not about what the recipient can give back to the giver. There's nothing that we could do for God, right? But he loves us. He's for us. He strives for our good, even when it hurts, even when it costs them, even when it was a sacrifice. Here's the second truth about the love of God that we're called to. Love puts others first, even when it hurts. Love puts others first, even when it hurts. There is no greater example of love than when the Son of God stepped down from heaven and lived and died for us when we did not deserve it. And the challenging truth this morning is that he calls us to the same kind of love. Right? A love that can endure a difficult season in marriage when the other person is not bringing you happiness because we realize that it's not about getting happiness or a warm, fuzzy feeling from them, but it's about pointing the other person to Christ. You know, a love that can walk with a child that consistently is going down the wrong path or turning in a different direction and, and rejecting you and angry at you because it's not about them. It's not about whether they're worthy of it or whether they deserve it. It's about the love that we're called to. It's about knowing when a coworker or a friend does something horrible or wrongs you, betrays you. It's about knowing that under the right circumstances, I'm capable of the same thing. And it's not about you anyways. I'm going to continue to love you. It's a love and a life that's not obsessed with the rat race of our culture of getting ahead, making ourselves more exalted and more prominent and getting more money, more comfort, more security, more patience and lifting ourselves up. And the reality is, is that the only way that that kind of love is possible in our lives is when we rejoice in the truth. When we rejoice in the great truth of God's love for us. When we're able to say, I'm not going to buy into the selfishness and the, the culture uh, that has kind of indoctrinated me in this way of thinking, that what I'm going to say is I am not sovereign. God, you are sovereign. You alone are the source of power and authority and truth. And I'm going to submit to you and rejoice in who you are because you are the truth. Right? It's only when we rejoice in that truth that God gives us the ability to love in the way he's called us to. Right, 1 John 4 says this. It says, we love because he 
first loved us. Right? When you have a love that's based on truth, and that's based on the love of God for you that can't be taken away, that can't be shaken, that has nothing to do with who you are and what you've done or how much you deserve it, you can pour out love to others because you're fulfilled. You have what you need. You don't need to put yourself any higher. You don't need to get your own way. And when you have that kind of love, your love can be, as Paul says in, in, in uh, verse 7, your love can bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. When you have that kind of love, your love can continue on. You can continue to walk in love and continuing to make that choice to love in every situation, regardless of if you get beat down, trampled on, neglected, pushed aside, wronged, if your rights are taken away. Right? You can continue to walk through those things and endure it in love if it's not about you and you understand it's about him. But here's, here's the truth. It's, it's not easy. It's what we're called to, but it's not easy. It's what Christ did for us. And it's what he calls us to. And the world needs to know that kind of love. Right? Our people, our next generation of students and young people need to see that kind of love in God's people. They need to see it in our lives because everywhere else, they're getting a different message. But I kid you not, yesterday while I was finishing up getting ready for this, I, I did a lot of my work in Java Burrito. It's a good spot to work. Saw several of you. Hey, Chris, good to see you yesterday for lunch, right? But I kid you not, as I was sitting there working yesterday, kind of right as I was getting ready to finish up, there was a table of high school girls, probably about five or six of them, sitting at the table in front of me. And a song came on the radio, or on their little playlist thing there, Right, and it was a song by Megan Trainer called Me Too, and I don't mean to throw her under the bus or anything, but her song came on, and I just happened to notice that all these high school kids were sitting there, and they were talking, but they all kind of were like excited that this song came on, and they were kind of bobbing along to it while they were talking. And I want you guys to hear the lyrics of this song, and don't, I'm not trying to be weird about it or read too much in it, or like, don't go home and like, take all the music devices from your kids, like, don't go that far, right? But I want you to hear these lyrics. This is just, this is one set, I don't know musical terms, I think this is like the refrain in the chorus, something like that, but here's what it said. It said, I thank God every day that I woke up feeling this way, uh-huh, and I can't help loving myself, and I don't need nobody else, nuh-uh. If I was you, I'd want to be me too. I'd want to be me too. I'd want to be me too. And you know what? I get it. I get that. It sounds like a pretty sweet deal to me to make life all about myself and to live the kind of life that everybody else is going to want. I get that. In fact, I know for me that if God had not intervened and showed me a different way and done some radical things in my life, that I'd be running after that kind of life just as hard as anyone, any other person my age or any other person in general. Right? And the reality is, can I be honest with you for a second? When, one of the things in student ministry that you hear, and I, I haven't heard this really from anybody here at this church, but in the past, uh, you know, it's been kind of a common theme in student ministry. One of the things that you hear is you hear parents that look at their kids, Christian parents, and this is heartbreaking, 
right? They look and they say, look, my kids have walked away from the faith. They don't want anything to do with the church. And unfortunately, I can't say that it really surprises me. Because so much of what we do is, okay, we bring our kids maybe to youth group, you know, one, an hour a week. It's if they don't have sports. No offense, anybody. I had to throw that one out there, right? But we bring them to church for maybe an hour a week. Maybe we pray with them. And the reality is, is that the rest of the time that they're out in the world, they're out with their friends, that the message that they're getting is, hey, this is about you. You can have it your way, right? You can get everything you want. You can determine what's right and wrong for you. And if I'm being honest, if I, if I put, okay, on one side I have, everybody wants to be me, I don't need nobody else, and I have, follow Jesus, die to yourself, live for others, what am I going to choose? Unless God intervenes, unless our students and our young people and just the, the world in general starts to see something that's better, starts to see true love in our lives, the trend's going to continue that way. They've got to see a love in our lives that's radical, a love that continues on even when it hurts, right? A love that's filled with joy from God that doesn't make sense with the circumstances around us, right? That kind of love is weird. It stands out. They'll notice that kind of love. And we have to have that kind of love in our lives. Right, some of you guys uh, already know this, but I'm a pretty big fan of the Tennessee Volunteers. Like, like kind of, I think Andrew would say I'm like borderline obsessive. And to be fair, like I did, I did go to Tennessee and like, uh, I actually, this is kind of just a cool random tidbit, but some of the guys on the current Tennessee team like uh, are part of a college ministry and got baptized like by the same guy and at the same college ministry that I got baptized in. So I, I feel this like connection with the team. Right, I'm basically on it. That's kind of how I like to think. <laughs> right, and they're, uh, they're an interesting team this season. You see, what's interesting about Tennessee is that they don't have any guys on their team that are you know, top recruits coming out of high school. There's not a single person on their roster that was considered a top 100 high school recruit when they came into college. But you know what? Right now, Tennessee is the number one college basketball team in the country. Go Vols. Right? And here's, here's the thing. The reason I think that right now they're the number one team in the country, and that's going to change. They're going to be a good team this season no matter what, but I don't know if they'll win the national championship or not. But the reason why they're a good team is because their team mantra, something that they wear on wristbands during practice and throughout the day, is what they call ENAM. It's I-N-A-M. It's not about me. That's how they play as a team. They play with, I think, what arguably is the best team chemistry and the best team basketball in the game right now in, in college. And that's the church. That's what we should be. A group of people that knows, like, I'm not really that special. I'm not that great. But you know what? God is. And I can live for others I can be a part of the team, and I can show the world a kind of love that's radical, right? And I'm going to be honest, I'm wrestling with this. I don't know exactly what to tell you walking out of here. How do we live that kind of love specifically? How do we apply it? It's not easy to come up with something like that, because anything that I pick is just going to be 
one random way that I, I picked, when in reality, the scope of the love that God calls us to fills up all of our life. It goes into every area, into every relationship. And so I'm not going to really leave you with one specific thing to, to do or scenario to act out, but what I want to do is I want to challenge you to build a question into your thinking, to build kind of a line that comes to mind when you're in these situations, right? And it's pretty simple. It's just this. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? The kind of love that's hard. The kind of love that hurts. The kind of love that's not about me. Even when it costs me. Even when I have to die to myself. And what does love require of me when I'm sitting on the couch and my wife asks me to get the remote from across the room? Right? What does love require of me when I, I have a friend or a coworker that's betrayed me and I have an opportunity to get back at them, to make it right? What does love require of me when I have a family member that has made stupid financial decisions that are entirely their fault, but they need my help? What does love require of me? How far will you go for love? How far will we go? Let's be the first to go out into the world and to show them that kind of love, that it's not about us. It's about him. It's about a God who loves us and is for us and has nothing to do with who we are. It's a God that loves us so much, even when it hurts, that he was willing to lay down his life for us. There's no greater love. There is no greater love than that and they need to see it. When we have that kind of love, when we stand in that truth, then our love can be said, the same as, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that we too can bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things for others. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much, God. Thank you for... For your son, Lord, thank you that we even have the option of knowing you and loving you, of being just immersed in your loving. God, because we do not deserve that opportunity. We don't deserve relationship with you. We don't deserve the joy and the peace that you offer to us, God. But you've given it to us. And you've challenged us to give it to others, God. And I don't know exactly where to go from here. God, I'm wrestling with this, and I pray that your spirit would stir it up in all of us to wrestle with this going forward, God, that we'd be challenged to a new kind of love, a higher kind of love, a love that is radical. God, a love that maybe even is called crazy by our normal American standards, God, but that's not the standard we want to go by, God. We want you to be our standard. We want your love to be what leads us forward, God, and I pray that that would be true of us. God, I pray that the young people in our country, God, that our, our, our generation now and below us, God, would know that the church loves them, God, that they would know that you love them and that we would show a kind of love that's only possible because of your love. God, make it true of us. I pray, God, that you'd give us the strength, the endurance, the ability the mindset, God, of that it's not about us, Lord, that we would be able to make it through whatever comes our way. 
God, and that we would walk in your love. We'd show it to others, that we'd lift your name high. Lord, we love you. We love you so much, but help us to love you more. Help us to love others more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.